up here on the 17 verses this morning. Hopefully you guys can see this. Um, this is the results of a study that the Barna Group did on generational views on evangelism. I don't know if you're familiar with the Barna organization. They are a Christian-based organization that does a lot of data studies on different things, trends within, uh, within the church. They recently did one on evangelism and, uh, again, on generational views, how different generations think about this task of sharing the good news of Jesus with people. Now, if you look at this, what you'll see is that for the most part, those first four questions, there's, there's general agreement. And since maybe you can't read all the fine print there, I'll give us a little bit more uh, insight here. But basically, in those first four categor- categories across generations, we agree that Jesus is good news, that we should be sharing that good news with other people, and we even feel fairly confident that we could answer questions about our faith if we were asked them. And the majority of us actually feel gifted to share our faith. That's what those first four categories are asking. That's kind of exciting news. But where it gets interesting is in those bottom two questions, you'll notice that the red circles are still fairly large, right? This is where we start to see some difference in generational views on evangelism. And what this tells us is that for younger generations, there is a deep ambivalence about evangelism, about sharing our faith with other people. That the, the second question from the bottom in particular asks the question, is it wrong to share our faith, especially with someone who already has uh, convictions about life and faith and the world and how things work? There is a question there for us. Is it actually wrong to share our faith with people who have prior held convictions? We know we should do it. We think Jesus is good news, but there's this tension there for us. David Kinneman, who, is, uh, who heads up the Barna organization, uh, writes this in response to these findings. First of all, he says, cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction is very difficult in a world of you do you, and don't criticize anyone's life choices and emotivism, the feeling's first priority that our culture makes a way of life. Cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction is a challenge. Okay? He goes on to say, as much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved. It's certainly about that. But it's also about reminding ourselves that this stuff matters. That the Bible is trustworthy. And that Jesus changes everything. Now as a church, we have said our mission is to help as many people as possible discover the good news about Jesus. This is sort of leaning into our name as Discovery Christian Church, right? We want to help as many people as possible discover the good news of Jesus. And so in order to accomplish that mission, we need to be sharing that good news, right? So this raises some questions for us, this research and and our mission. I think it raises the questions, do we actually believe that this stuff matters? Do we believe that Jesus really does change everything? Now as we continue in our journey through Matthew, today's text is so foundational for us. This is a passage of scripture that exemplifies our mission and I think brings to life some of our deeply held values 
uh, in a really clear way. And so I am so excited about this conversation. This is going to be a fun one, all right? So Matthew chapter 9 is where we begin. I want you to read along with me, starting in verse 1, where it says that Jesus stepped into a boat. If you were with us last Sunday, remember we saw Jesus get into a boat and go to the other side of the lake. The other side of the lake being Gentile territory, the first time that he goes in that direction. And we talk about the cost and the risk involved in doing that. Now he gets in a boat and he comes back over to his own town. Verse 2, some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Here is this theme that we've seen over and over again in our journey through Matthew, this theme of authority. Jesus has set himself up prior to this in contrast to the teachers of the law in in his teaching. We've seen that it has a different quality of authority. In his miracles, Jesus has exercised authority over the material and non-material world, and his disciples have even marveled at how he has the authority to speak To the natural elements, the wind and the waves obey him. What kind of man is this? Now today, Jesus demonstrates a dangerous and confrontational authority. He makes an authority claim here that causes the teachers of the law for the first time to really start to push back against him. Jesus says in verse 6, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now in this claim, Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man as a self-identifier. This is the second time that he's done that. Done this. He did it last week in, in chapter 8. He, uh, Matthew will go on to show 27 more times where Jesus uses this phrase Son of Man. More than in any other gospel, Matthew hits on this phrase, this identifier that Jesus uses. I think this is in part because of his Jewish audience. They would have been familiar with the idea of Son of Man. It comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, where we read, In my vision at night, this is Daniel writing, There before me was one like a Son of Man, God in human form, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority. Glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is one of the most prominent Old Testament visions of the Messiah, this Savior, this King that the Jewish people were waiting for, were anticipating coming. And so Jesus is using it here very intentionally and very provocatively. Make no mistake, he says. I am your Messiah. I am 
God's son. I am the son of man. And therefore, I have all authority, glory, and sovereign power. Authority to heal and to teach and even to forgive sins. And then he does this, this thing, uh, sort of this tricky question, right? What's easier to do? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. <clears throat> now, obviously, in, in a sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. These are just words, right? Anybody can kind of say that. No one can really prove or disprove it. But to heal someone, that's obvious and tangible. And what Jesus does in this moment is he does both. By backing up this claim with this healing, he's, he's demonstrating, saying very clearly, I am God. I am the Son of Man, God in human flesh. But in the minds of the teachers of the law, to make this kind of claim, to say that you have the authority to forgive sins, that you have the authority of God, is blasphemy, which was a very, very serious sin. And again, it begins this conflict, this conflict that will escalate really throughout the rest of the story that Matthew tells us. This conflict is part of the cost that Jesus was talking about last week when we were uh, in that conversation. This is a very important truth for us. If we take Jesus seriously, if we believe he is Son of Man, God in the flesh, powerful enough, authoritative enough to forgive us our sins. If we take all of that seriously, it will put us into conflict. And it will especially put us into conflict with those who do not want their nice religious worlds disrupted. And when I use the word religious there, I mean it in both a secular and a sacred sense. Taking Jesus seriously will put you in conflict with those who do not want their nice religious worlds disruptive. And we'll see this even more in just a moment. But when you start to mess with people's conceptions of who is in and who is out, what is heretical and blasphemous, when you mess with the inner circle or the inner ring, to use a phrase from C.S. Lewis, you will make people mad. Again, we'll see more of this in just a second, but we cannot leave this part of the text without talking about how the whole scene begins. We have to talk about these friends for just a moment. Jesus offers this man forgiveness and then healing when he sees the faith of his friends. And the phrase I want us to hold on to very tightly is their faith. When he sees their faith. Now, one of our deeply held values at Discovery is the value of community. Any church will say they value community, and that's great. They should say that. So for us, a way to sort of help define that or bring a little bit of clarity to that, we've created hashtags for all of our values. And again, this is not to be cute or clever. This is simply to help illuminate what we mean when we say community. Our hashtag here is better together. What this gets at is a couple of ideas. One is that we cannot be a disciple of Jesus on our own. We can only be formed as a disciple in this kingdom of right relationships if we are in relationships with each other. And then uh, I think the second idea within this is we cannot accomplish the mission that Jesus has called us to by ourselves. 
to help people discover the good news of Jesus. This is a communal project. We are a community that together brings people to Jesus to discover the good news of Jesus together and being redundant there on purpose. We are a community that together brings people to Jesus to discover the good news of Jesus together. This is why discovery groups are so important for us. Okay? We don't think about Sunday morning gathering as being the main event, and then if you're an extra spiritual or extra committed person, you go to a group. These are on the same level, and there's synergy between them. There's conversation and connection that happens between these two places, these two environments for us to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus together. In groups, we help pick each other up. We carry each other's mats to Jesus so that we can be healed, so that our sins can be forgiven. And then we go and we get the next mat and we bring it to Jesus and we do this together because we're better together. So a couple questions for us here. Are we bringing people to Jesus together? And if Jesus were with us, physically speaking, would he recognize our faith? Would he recognize our faith? Now, as Jesus goes on from there, he sees a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here is where Matthew writes himself in, into the story. Many scholars agree that this is Matthew, the same author of this book. He writes himself into the story in a way that really illustrates the power of the good news of Jesus. To this point in the story, Jesus has only invited a couple of people intentionally to be his disciples. All of them have been fishermen. Fishermen were unlikely disciples. They were blue-collar guys. They were less educated in many ways. But tax collector, this is a whole other level of unlikely disciple. This is starting to get scandalous. These are sketchy characters. These were scoundrels. This is the equivalent of a Wall Street shark. Traders who had sold out their own people to make a few bucks off the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus chooses Matthew. And I love that it says that he was sitting at that table. While Matthew is in the act of collecting taxes, Jesus picks him and says, I want you to follow me. Jesus, not afraid to take risks, to choose disciples from unsavory groups of people. And Matthew does not want us to miss this. He wants us to see Jesus' power to save. He picked even me, tax collector. This is the radical equality of the kingdom of God. And for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, again, this is a huge problem. 
it appears to them that Jesus does not seem to care about the things that they care about, things like law and purity and faithfulness. It appears that Jesus has a very cavalier attitude towards sin. Sin was a big deal for the Jews. The the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, and then this whole tradition that they had built up around that. Volumes of works trying to interpret what all that meant was all about how do we deal with sin through these rituals and procedures and rules. If we do these rules right, they thought, then we'll be in right relationship with God and this will lead us to have security in our land Freedom, peace, prosperity, all those sorts of ideals if we do the rules and the procedures and the rituals right. And so here comes Jesus. He just seems to be flaunting all of this by picking people like Matthew and including them on his team. Hanging out with Matthew's friends, more tax collectors, and I love this phrase from a different translation, other notorious sinners. And Jesus says his justification for this is these are the people who need me. He quotes Hosea 6.6 to signal there's a whole new way of dealing with sin. It's not sacrifice. It's not rule following. It is grace. It is mercy. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And here for us is where we get into the nitty-gritty implication of our mission and our values. Because we want to be a church that helps people discover the good news of Jesus, we need to be okay with all kinds of people being a part of what we do. We have to be ready to be welcoming of and associated with some people that might make us a little bit uncomfortable. This is kind of a silly example, but I'll know we're really doing this when we have some hungover college students with us on Sunday morning. I can't wait for that. Now, this is not just to be, you know, again, edgy for the sake of being edgy. But Jesus took some serious flack for going to the wrong places and being with the wrong people. And if we don't get at least a little bit of flack for going to the wrong places and being with the wrong people, then I would argue we are doing it wrong. This gets at another one of our values. This is the value of authenticity. Now, again, part of this is about being real with who we are, being open about even our flaws, sharing our lives with each other, becoming more and more our real selves. All of that is true and great. But the idea we're going after here is represented in, the, in our hashtag, church for the rest of us. Church for the rest of us. This is a mouthful, but it comes straight from this passage. Matthew chapter 9, eating with tax collectors and other notorious sinners. That person who thinks, I cannot go to church. If I went to church and I showed up in that building, lightning would strike and the thing would burn down. That is who I want discovery to be for. William Temple is famous for saying the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Let me read that again. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. So some questions here. Are we willing to be a little bit uncomfortable? 
with who shows up? Are we willing to be criticized for who we are with and what we are doing? And are we willing to push some boundaries to be with people who really need good news? One of my favorite stories is told by Tony Campolo in his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. It's a great book with a terrible cover. <laughs> and if you're not familiar with Tony Campolo, um, you should become more familiar with him. He will push your buttons, but in some good ways. I love this story. It perfectly captures this, this idea, this value of church for the rest of us. The story goes like this. Tony's from Philadelphia, the East Coast. He flies out to Hawaii for a speaking engagement. So a huge time change, and his body has not caught up with all of that. He's up very early in the morning. He decides he needs to get out of his hotel room. So he finds himself at this little diner in Honolulu at 3 o'clock in the morning. He's sitting there drinking coffee. A group of women come in, and it becomes very clear what they did for a living. This was a group of eight or nine prostitutes. So here's where we pick up the story. Tony writes, one of them who was sitting near to me mentioned that her birthday would be tomorrow. And the other women laughed saying, what, you want us to throw you a birthday party or something? Agnes, that was her name, said no. No one's ever thrown me a birthday party before. So the women leave. I approach the guy behind the counter and say, do these women come here every morning? The guy, his name was Harry, said, yeah, they're here pretty much every day. So Tony says, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to come back tomorrow and throw a surprise birthday party for Agnes. Harry called to his wife who came out of the kitchen. We told her the plan and she said, oh, that is a wonderful idea. You know, Agnes is really nice. No one ever does anything for her. This will be great. Well, then, if it's okay with you, Tony says, I'll, I'll get back here tomorrow early enough to decorate, and I'll bring a birthday cake. And Harry interjects, no, 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 I got that. I, the birthday cake is my thing. Let me take care of the cake. So the next morning at 2.30, Tony's back. He writes, Harry and I and his wife, we hung crepe paper, balloons, a cardboard sign that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And the shabby little diner was transformed. Harry and his wife must have gotten word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. Wall-to-wall prostitutes. And Tony and Harry and his wife. At 3.30 on the dot, the door swung open and in came Agnes and her friends and we all screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes. And never before had I seen someone so stunned. Her mouth fell open. Her legs buckled. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And as she was led to one of the stools, we all sang, Happy Birthday. When we came to the end of the song, Happy Birthday, Dear Agnes, Happy Birthday to you, her eyes started to get moist. And when the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried into the room, she just lost it and started sobbing. Harry, kind of a rough guy, Grumbles, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow them out. If you don't blow them out, I'll blow them out. And a few seconds later, he did. <laughs> then he handed her a knife and said, cut the cake, Agnes, let's serve the cake. Agnes looked at the cake for a long time and then asked, is it okay if I keep the cake for a while? Is it okay if we don't eat it right now? 
Harry shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep it. Take it home if you want. And she asked, can I? Then looking at me, she said, I just live down the street a couple doors. I'll take the cake home. I'll be right back, I promise. And so she picked up the cake and walked out of the diner holding it like it was the holy grail. And we all just stood there and watched her leave. The diner door closed and there was a stunned silence in the place. And then Tony writes, not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, how about we pray? Looking back on it now, he says, it seems a little strange to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but then it just felt like the right thing to do. So he says, I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be gracious to her. And when I finished praying, Harry leaned over the counter and said, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those wonderful moments, Tony says, when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry pauses and goes, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there were, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. And Tony writes, wouldn't we all? Church for the rest of us. Here's how the scene ends. Jesus' disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? A great question to ask after a party. <laughs> Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus goes bold again. This language of bridegroom is a double down on the Messiah claim. He's not hiding himself in this conversation at all. He also here makes one of the first references to his ultimate destiny, that he will die. There will be this time of mourning, but not now. He says now is a time for celebration. The kingdom of God is a party. And for the third time today, we see one of our core values at play. This is the value of joy. Our hashtag here is fun is spiritual. At our teaching team meeting, when we were talking about this text, someone said one of the things they love about Jesus is he always seems to be having a good time wherever he goes. And it's true. In Matthew's gospel, the fun is happening wherever Jesus is. And so for us, to be a community that brings people to Jesus, that helps people discover the good news of Jesus, we have to capture this joy. This joy that Jesus has and that comes from being with him because, again, the kingdom of God is a party. 
It's a celebration. We also here see another repeated Matthew theme, this theme of old versus new. Jesus is showing us there's a new way of dealing with sin. There's mercy instead of sacrifice, relationship instead of rules, grace instead of performance. Because the bridegroom is here. The Son of Man has come. There is a Savior, forgiveness of sins. There's new wine. The old has passed. The new has come. So celebrate, throw a party. Fun is spiritual. So the, the, the question for us here is what new things do we need? We need new structures, new methods, new ways of telling the story and sharing the good news. We need new songs and new leaders, fresh ideas and a renewed sense coming back to where we started that this stuff matters and that Jesus really changes everything. I want to close with this. When I was in Oakland, I got to know a young man named Kevin. There should be a picture up here. Um, he's, on the, he's on your far right here. And then that's me and Amy in the middle and our friend David on the left. This was from uh, a uh, party that uh, Kevin threw for us. He, he cooked us the most incredible meal I've ever had in my life. One of the last nights we were in Oakland before moving here to Davis. Kevin identifies as a gay man. And he moved to the Bay Area, escaping a, a very strict, judgmental, fundamentalist upbringing in Arkansas. And his hope was in moving to the Bay Area to explore his sexuality, a life of freedom, away from his home community and the church that he grew up in. And he found that that lifestyle was just as, as judgmental in many ways as the one that he grew up in. And so he was very lonely, very depressed. Uh, even suicidal at moments. He ended up getting invited to our church by a guy that he worked with named Josiah. And he came for the first several weeks, just sat in the back row, didn't really talk to anybody, very afraid of rejection and judgment. Kevin and I ended up having some wonderful conversations, become really good friends. And I'd love to tell you that, you know, as of right now, there's some sort of perfect ending to this story. I don't know that there is yet. It's still very much being written, but our friendship continues. Kevin sends me a letter pretty much every month. I wanted to read you part of the first letter that he wrote to me. And, and I do this with a little bit of trepidation. This is not about um, me, okay? I don't want this to be about something that I did at all, But I hope that as you hear this letter, you hear some things that I deeply, deeply hope and pray become part of who we are as a church. So Kevin writes, Steve, I hope this finds you well. I hope people are treating you well in Davis. We miss you. This is going to sound silly, but I wanted you to know that it had been years since I'd sat in a church and wept but I did on your last Sunday because you are the first pastor in my life who loved me unconditionally. When you hugged me as we said goodbye, that's the closest I've ever felt being safe in the arms of Jesus. And then listen to this sentence very carefully. During that brief moment in time, I felt peace and I didn't worry anymore. So thank you for being a part of my life 
and for not hurting me like so many other men of God have done before. And again, this is not about something that Steve did. This is about who we are as a church. This is why discovery exists. Because there are Kevins here in Davis. There are Kevins in Woodland. There are Kevins on campus who are desperate for the good news of Jesus. Desperate for someone to pick them up and drag their mat to Jesus. Desperate for someone who will go to their party and hang out with their friends. Desperate for some new wine, for some grace and some mercy. And to use Kevin's words, there are people who want to feel safe, who desire peace, who don't want to worry anymore. And so, yes, sharing the good news of Jesus can be scary and intimidating. And there are some people who will reject it. There is some cost that will come with sharing the good news about Jesus. But there are Kevins who need us to show them there is a church for you. We are better together. Fun is spiritual. And that in Jesus, the Son of Man, we are shown mercy. We are offered forgiveness of sins. And that means it's time to party. Let's pray. Father, we are compelled by the, the figure of Jesus, the risks that he took while he was here. His willingness to go to places that were uncomfortable, that would uh, mess with people who thought that they had it all figured out. God, thank you for your willingness to love us even when we were unlovely. Even while we were sinners, you died for us. God, may we be a community that recognizes our own sickness, our own need for you. And then would we recklessly follow you to places where the good news is desperately needed. Even if that leads to some, some ridicule, some pushback, God, would we be willing to go there for the sake of your name being known? Because there are people like Kevin in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools who are desperate for some good news. And Jesus is the best news possible for each and every one of us. If there are people here this morning who just need to accept that, that through Jesus there is forgiveness of sins, God, would you move, would you move in our hearts when we accept that today for the first time? we've maybe been following you for a while, God, would you re-soften our hearts towards the people that you love, that you want to be with, that you want to be a part of your kingdom party. May we do whatever it takes to, to be with them and to share the good news that we found in Jesus with them. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name.